Well, there was a time when we would have, uh, here at Cato, would have blamed this on uh, the non-market nature of the taxi service in DC, but with the entry of Uber, I'm not, I guess we would have expected a little better from our, our taxis here in DC, but Dr. Higgs is here, and we're ready to formally begin. Uh, I may know many of you. My name is John Samples. I'm the vice president and publisher here at the Cato Institute. Uh, and I would like to welcome you to a book forum for uh, Robert Higgs, Taking a Stand, Reflections on Life, Liberty, and the Economy. Um, I think it's fair to say that for most people in this room, Robert Higgs really hardly does need uh, an introduction. He is a leading libertarian uh, writer uh, and a leading, uh, has a degree in economics, but has uh, worked in economic history. And as you know, when you think back over the libertarian era, which we may say begins around 1970, Robert Higgs is one of the writers who has given us uh, some of the big, one of the most important takes on the big picture. That is, the big picture for uh, people like us that are concerned about limited government is going to be a big picture about, despite the obvious, uh, appeals of limited government, of capitalism, and so on. Why is it that government is so big and, and seems, and why is it that it's grown as big as it has? Uh, and this was particularly in a, a country like the United States that had a constitution that was designed specifically to prevent this kind of growth from taking place. So in a sense, Robert Higgs is a man that gave us one of the big answers to that. There's a few others, but I think many people refer back to him when you're discussing these issues. Crisis in Leviathan is, in fact, a very important work. And here we have his new book, which brings together many of his uh, shorter essays on these topics. You know, they're the sort of essay that you can read in, say, uh, four or five minutes or taking a few and a half hour. Uh, fits very well into your day, and very interesting, very thought-provoking. Let me go on and formally uh, tell you about Dr. Higgs, and then we'll get to his comments today. Robert Higgs is Senior Fellow in Political Economy for the Independent Institute and Editor-at-Large of Independence Quarterly Journal, The Independent Review. He's recipient, recipient of numerous awards, including the Schlaubaum Award for Lifetime Defense of Liberty, the Cezaz Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Cause of Civil Liberties, the Lysander Spooner Award for Advancing the Literature of Liberty, the Friedrich von Wieser Memorial Prize for Excellence in Economic Education, the Templeton Honor Rose Award uh, on Education in a Free Society. Uh, he's also the editor of several independent institute books, including Opposing the Crusader State, The Challenge of Liberty, and several others. As an author, he has written, besides Crisis and Leviathan, which has seen its 25th anniversary edition. Uh, he is the author of Delusions of Power, Depression, War, and the Cold War, Neither Liberty Nor Safety, uh, The Political Economy of Fear, which uh, appeared in the Czech language, Resurgence of the Warfare State Against Leviathan, The Transformation of the American Economy, 1865 to 1914, Competition and Coercion, Blacks in the American Economy, 1865 to 1914, and as well as Crisis in Leviathan. So indeed, a man of uh, great achievements on writing books, and that doesn't even bring into play his scholarly writings, which number over 100, uh, and these writings. Uh, so I'd like to welcome to the Cato Institute, Robert Higgs. Thank you. 
Thank you, John. And uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming out today. I apologize for being late. I, I, I despise being late. I, it, uh, it makes me feel very bad. <laughs> but uh, I'm afraid I got a cab driver who didn't know where to go and who didn't even know how to use his GPS system. So uh, I had to switch uh, horses in midstream and uh, somewhere in the city, hop out of that cab and hop into another with a more knowledgeable driver. But uh, here I am. Uh, I'm glad to be here. I've been affiliated with uh, the Cato Institute for a long time, uh, almost 30 years. Uh, I've been an, uh, an adjunct scholar of Cato. And uh, I have many, many friends uh, who are here now or who were here at some point in the past. And uh, so it's, uh, it, it's been a wonderful association for me over the years, and I'm always glad for an opportunity to come back. Uh, the, the occasion today is, a, is an unusual one. I'm not here to give a speech uh, or a, a presentation about some new research I've, I've done. Um, if you have any familiarity with, uh, with other books I've written, I can tell you right away that uh, this new one is different. It's not like any of the others at all. And uh, in fact, uh, it had a, had a reluctant birth. Uh, it was an idea, as it were, that uh, David Thoreau, the head of the Independent Institute, where I've uh, worked for a long time, had and uh, and I thought, all right, that's a okay idea, David. I'll do that. So I started working on it, and uh, and then I decided, no, it was not a good idea. I shouldn't do it. Uh, and then later on, I changed my mind and decided that, well, it wasn't such a bad idea. I would do it after all. And I started working on it again, and then I decided, no, it's a lousy idea. <laughs> I shouldn't do that, so I stopped. And only on the third try did I uh, maintain enough momentum to carry this uh, product to completion. Uh, one of the reasons uh, I was so reluctant about producing it is that um, it's not a scholarly book. Uh, in fact, um, of the 99 chapters, uh, almost all of them were uh, originally blog posts, and most of those posts at uh, The Beacon, which is the, uh, the group blog uh, of the Independent Institute. And uh, I started contributing to that uh, about seven years ago. And I didn't think I would write much for the blog at the time, but uh, as it turned out, I, I've written hundreds of posts uh, at the Beacon over the years, and they range from just a paragraph or two to, to fairly substantive uh, um, analyses of uh, various subjects. And they range all over the, the field in terms of the topic that I deal with. I've uh, unfortunately had too many interests for my own good over the years. I, I really have always admired those scholars who focused on something, became expert at it, and, and stuck with their knitting. But uh, I just don't have that kind of mind that will settle for uh, sticking in one groove uh, for very long. So I've, uh, I've had many interests. I've uh, written about a variety of topics. 
Now, of course, most of uh, what I've worked on and written about over the years uh, involves economics uh, or politics and government or history or all of them at once, usually. So those are the areas in which uh, my work is, has uh, ranged around. And that's true of the, uh, uh, of the pieces, uh, for the most part, in uh, this book, Taking a Stand, uh, which has a, a rather odd cover showing half of my face. And I could make a joke about that, but I won't. Uh, but uh, at all events, uh, this is an odd book. As John said, uh, you can read one piece at a time. Uh, uh, no particular piece requires that you have read any of the others in the book for it to stand up, as well as it's going to stand up. Uh, so uh, you can look around uh, as your interests might dictate. Uh, another reason I, I was reluctant to bring out this book uh, is, is that uh, because of the more personal nature of these um, little essays, uh, they, they have a an excessively autobiographical element, I suppose you might say. Uh, I, I don't presume that people are interested in me as such, uh, at least not as much as I am. And, uh, and yet, uh, uh, many of these essays uh, involve personal recollections that involve my own uh, uh, work in uh, things such as consulting or academia, uh, where I was a, a professor for a long time before I, uh, I left academia. Uh, for the most part, I've, I've kept a hand in and I've been a visiting pro professor from time to time. Indeed, I, I am here right now as a visiting professor at, at George Mason University. But, um, uh, but uh, I, I feel I learned a lot from my forays outside of academia, particularly. Uh, that's where I learned the most about how, how government actually operates, about how uh, regulation actually operates, how the legal system actually operates, is by being a participant in, in those kinds of activities. And uh, what I learned uh, exemplifies a kind of theme that runs through this new book which is that uh, things are often not what they seem to be. Uh, indeed, they're not what they purport to be. And maybe even worse, a lot of what we see in the world of politics and government especially is a kind of ritual dance in which all the dancers know it's a ritual dance, but they don't want to come out and say that. It's bad form to s speak the truth when you're involved in politics and government activities. People want to pretend uh, that certain things are being done, for example, for public-spirited reasons, when everybody and his dog knows that what's driving the process is powerful special interests, uh, wealthy people involved in politics, their friends in the Congress or the regulatory agencies. Uh, very often what we're seeing is an elaborate system of theft and misrepresentation, all covered up with ceremony and ritual that makes it seem as if it's all on the up and up. 
And that's the kind of overarching attitude that you find infusing the essays in this new work. Uh, I'm too old to pretend anymore. <laughs> I don't have time for another 20 or 30 years of pretense. And so I have less patience with playing that game. Uh, now, if you're in certain areas, you have to play it, because if you don't play it, you're cast into outer darkness. You just have no alternative to, to, to waltzing through the ritual dance as if people mean what they say. But we all know they don't. Uh, where else but in politics is blurting out the truth considered a gaffe? <laughs> and it is. We all see it from time to time. Somebody leaves the microphone on when he thinks it's off, and he blurts out the truth, and that becomes a scandal. Do we want to live in a world where the truth is scandalous? Well, that's the world we live in, actually. A world of pretense and make-believe. Now, of course, this isn't the case by accident. It serves various purposes, and it serves the purposes especially of incumbents, of the rich, the established, the connected, the people with political influence and clout. Uh, they like this kind of world of fake because they know what's going on and they know how to work the system. And the, the fakery is for the general public. It's for the people who don't have active immediate involvement in what's going on in government and politics, uh, and who have to be kept uh, from becoming too restive. If people knew the truth, they'd have their pitchforks out and be, and be coming into this city uh, to set fires, probably. But uh, they don't, and they're not going to find out either, uh, because uh, the world of politics, where politics matters, is all played between the 45-yard lines. Nobody wants to get outside the bounds of what is good form. No one wants to speak the plain truth. Everybody wants to hem and haw and uh, cover up uh, one's uh, announcements and statements about how the system works. Uh, well, I've been studying this system for more than 50 years in one way or another. And I think I know a little bit about it. And that's the kind of knowledge, if indeed I'm right about its being knowledge, that you'll find inside the covers of this book, Taking a Stand. Now, the, the, the book is divided into several big, big classes. And I'll just give you a general architecture uh, in a few minutes here. I, I think we'll have more fun uh, with questions and answers. but. But uh, the book starts off with a number of essays about the state and politics. And, and the themes that run through these essays, which, uh, which have to do with all sorts of things, uh, public demonstrations, uh, uh, the nature of democracy, uh, and so forth, uh, many of them boil down to, to analyses or considerations of the seen versus the unseen, of ritual versus reality, and basically of fraud versus honesty. These are all different 
angles by which we can look at the fact that things are not what they seem to be or not what they're represented to be. There's a clash again and again and again. Uh, a large part of the book then has to do with the analysis itself. How should we go about studying or learning about economics and, uh, and the state? And uh, my views on how economics ought to be done are, are not typical uh, of uh, e economists in the mainstream of the profession. Uh, I've, uh, I, I've been a member of the mainstream profession. I was when I started out for some time, and I played their game uh, with some success. Uh, but even at the very beginning, I was not happy with how economists went about their work in some respects, and so I was a bit of a maverick. And over time, I've become more of a maverick. Uh, I gravitated away from mainstream neoclassical economics and toward Austrian economics, uh, but uh, in some ways I also simply gravitated toward uh, the kind of analysis that uh, can be traced back to some of the Chicagoans uh, down through the 20th century and particularly to the, uh, the offshoot of, uh, of that school of economics uh, as seen in the work of Armin Alcian and others at UCLA in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And uh, when I was a professor at the University of Washington, uh, we had an economics department at the time that was a, a preeminent uh, department in the development of the analysis of, of property rights and transaction costs. And, and, uh, and I still very much believe in that kind of neo-institutional analysis. And I've uh, continued to do that from time to time throughout my career. Uh, one of the things that uh, is important in doing economic analysis right is disaggregation. Uh, particularly when we, when we look at the whole economy, uh, economists for actually throughout my lifetime now have been uh, using a very uh, aggregated form of analysis, which we can trace back to, to Keynes and the early Keynesians who who wanted to represent the whole economy in, in very big chunks. And macroeconomics has continued to be done that way, although it's evolved through many, many iterations of revision and, and has gone to, to new non-Keynesian or even anti-Keynesian forms. It's continued to remain a very aggregative uh, type of analysis. And as a result, I think it's often very misleading uh, uh, indeed utterly wrong in many cases, totally misses the point. Economics is a, is a, uh, a way of thinking about choice, a way of talking about how changes in relative costs and relative benefits lead people to alter their decisions. And you, you have none of that in what is called macroeconomics. It's all very mechanical. In the early days, uh, there, there was even a representation of the economy uh, uh, known as the hydraulic model, which consisted of a lot of tubes and colored water flowing around. It was a totally engineering conception of how the economy works. That's wrong. The economy is not a machine. It's not, a, <laughs> it's not an engineering contraption. It's, 
It's an incredibly complex, ever-changing form of human interaction, cooperation, and competition. And uh, you, you can't understand how it works if you think it's a mechanical thing. And if it has a problem, you can't fix it with some kind of mechanical solution. Indeed, if you go about it that way, you're almost certain to make matters worse rather than better. I also spend some time distinguishing between genuine explanations uh, and what I would think often verge on ideological apologetics. Uh, the so-called new welfare economics, which, which has been heavily focused on the identification of, of so-called market failures, uh, classification of market failures, the recommendation of government policy to remedy these market failures. Uh, this has been actually a negative development in economics, in my judgment. It's done much more harm than good. It's diverted a lot of smart people from using their brains productively. And it's led to an economics profession which, uh, which actually believes that by going and doing some equations on the blackboard, uh, they've discovered something about how the world works uh, that's sufficient to justify the use of government policy to change the world, which is to say sufficient to justify the intrusion of people with guns or threats of using guns into the lives of human beings uh, with the purported goal of improving efficiency or uh, the public's well-being in some way. Uh, I think we ought to be much more careful before we send out people with guns to do anything, anything. And we certainly ought to be very, very careful about making economic policy and having the government enforce these rules on people on the basis of blackboard demonstrations of market failure. Um, I, I speak quite a bit about an idea I've developed over the years called regime uncertainty. And um, this is an idea that has a long heritage. It goes back to, uh, to many people's discussions of business confidence and how business confidence enters into the decision making of, of people, especially during uh, crises uh, uh, financial debacles, uh, other periods in which the economy uh, enters into kind of uncertainty or turmoil. Uh, but regime uncertainty, as I've developed the idea, has to do with people's confidence in the security of their private property rights. Uh, it's not, a, not about you know, what kind of monetary policy the Fed is going to carry out or anything like that, because the name regime uncertainty has been used by other economists in, in other senses. But in my sense, it's about, it's about the security people feel as they make their plans about the future with regard to will they be able to control their own property? Will someone intrude on their decision making or override their decisions? Will the fruits of their investments be taken away from them by taxes or regulation, uh, things of that sort. And I first developed this idea in, in, in relation to studying the long duration of the Great Depression, because it became quite obvious to me through the years of studying that particular episode that, that from 1935 <coughs> on, really until the end of the decade, the Roosevelt administration had created tremendous fear 
in the minds of private investors. Many people actually believed that the, the government was making itself uh, a dictatorial, and Roosevelt in particular was attempting to mimic the dictatorship of Mussolini or Adolf Hitler. Uh, now, we may in retrospect look back and say that was all hyperbole. Uh, these people had lost their grip. But uh, if we did that, we'd be wrong. I don't think they had lost their grip. If you put yourself in their situation and consider what they knew, what they saw, how the government was dealing with them, what the President of the United States and his closest advisors were saying and doing, they had very good reason to fear that the private property order of the United States was on the verge of utter destruction. And so they acted accordingly, which is to say that long-term private investment never came close to reviving during the 1930s. And that was a major reason, if not the major reason, why the Depression persisted uh, on and on and on, uh, well past the end of the decade of the 1930s. But regime uncertainty uh, shows up in other places and at other times. And what I've argued recently and what I discuss in a number of the essays in this book is how it has reappeared uh, since 2007. Uh, the financial uh, catastrophes of late 2008 in particular triggered a tremendous amount of panic in many circles and uh, led the led government to intervene in a whole variety of, of ways that had never intervened before. That, uh, uh, I don't think any economist, any economist ever expected the Fed to do what it did from 2008 onward. I mean, the magnitude of the actions the Fed, Fed took in 2008 and 2009, and to some extent since then as well, the fact that it's held short-term interest rates in a negative real range for now seven years and has thereby brought about a massive misallocation and and malinvestment of resources during that period, not to, minish, not to mention impoverishing a whole class of people who expected to live on interest earnings in their retirement. No one expected that. This was extraordinary. No one ever expected the government to nationalize the, the, almost the entire uh, lending for residential mortgages. Uh, uh, Fannie and Freddie were, you know, pretending to be private institutions uh, up to 2008. And there were, you know, some people understood that wasn't quite the case. But nonetheless, they were paying private investors uh, uh, income. Uh, but, of course, now they're, they're totally state-run operations. And, uh, of course, the government nationalized, to some extent, hundreds of banks, uh, took over a couple of big automobile companies, and took countless other actions that were simply extraordinary. Now, what, what happened as a result of all this, uh, along with the election of a new president who pushed for Obamacare and, and uh, people in the Congress put pushing to, to create a massive reorganization of financial regulation and, and, and other things, all this going on at once uh, created a resurgence of regime uncertainty. And uh, as a result, uh, private net business investment 
has remained below its pre-crisis levels virtually ever since. I mean, there, <laughs> I haven't looked at the data recently, but if there's been a full recovery, it's, it's only in the past year or so that it's happened. Now, private business net investment happens to be the preeminent driver of economic growth. If you create conditions in which that kind of investment is suppressed, you guarantee you're going to have an anemic economy. And that's exactly what we've had ever since that recession broke. So uh, regime uncertainty is a theme that I've come back to quite a lot. And some of the more substantive essays in this book have to do with it. Um, uh, I have other things to say about economic analysis. I won't talk about those right now because they're, they're of interest probably more to economists and uh, uh, serious students of economics than they are to people in general. Uh, but I do have a lot of essays in the book about the current recession, about the policies that were undertaken in response to it, a lot about the monetary policy making, and also about the fact that labor markets uh, underwent uh, some extraordinary changes, uh, particularly uh, an abrupt reduction in the, in the ratio of employment to, to population. Uh, which uh, the ratio that fell by about five percentage points abruptly in about a year's time in 2008 and has remained depressed ever since. What we have here in the United States is, is five or six million people who, as it were, disappeared from economic life so far as being producers is concerned. And, and nobody's quite sure what they're doing. Where'd they go? How are they surviving? What, who are these people? And, what are they up to now? Uh, and and uh, this, is, this is not a, a trivial thing. We're a big economy, it's true, but when, when you have five or six million producers just evaporate, that's a serious matter uh, so far as uh, producing goods and services is concerned. So I do discuss that and uh, put it in historical perspective in the book. Uh, if you thumb through the book, you'll find that it has a lot of graphs in it, even though it's not, as I said, a scholarly book. I did want to give some evidence uh, when I discussed some of these topics that I wasn't just uh, blowing hot air. Uh, the final substantive section of the book is about libertarianism. I've been a libertarian of some kind almost my entire adult life. Uh, but the kind of libertarian I am has changed over the years. Uh, I've become a crazier and crazier libertarian, I guess some would say. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm, I've still been invited back to Cato, so <laughs> I can't be too nutty. Uh, but anyhow, uh, read those essays and judge for yourself. Uh, I, I uh, in particular, I'm a little different from many libertarians in that I don't, I don't like to fight my fellow libertarians. I, I, I don't like to engage in doctrinal infighting. Uh, there, there's, there's just one case, and I do discuss it in the book, there's one case in which I do draw the line, and that is the issue of war and peace, because I think that is utterly fundamental to everything that libertarianism is and depends on. 
uh, if, we, if we hand the war-making key to the state, we might as well just report for incarceration. Because once the state goes to war, it will override every other consideration in the service of its war-making. It's done this again and again. In fact, if you read my earlier book, Crisis and Leviathan, and some of my other work, you'll see a tremendous amount of evidence that World War I and World War II were the big events, not the Depression, not the New Deal. That was a kind of follow-on or sequel of World War I. The two world wars were the occasions when liberty was slaughtered in this country. And not only do people not understand that, uh, not only do they not understand, by and large, how critical war-making is uh, in the preservation of liberty or the destruction of liberty, but the, there's actually this kind of conservative uh, uh, myth that goes around about how the, the government's wars have been the glorious occasions when governments saved our liberty, which is total hogwash. It's utterly ahistorical. There's not a shred of, uh, 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 of substance in that claim. It, before both of those world wars, Americans were freer than they were after them. And it wasn't just a coincidence. It was because of how those wars were fought and because of their legacies. So that theme, which has run through my work for decades, uh, is still there. It's still there, and particularly in my understanding of what libertarian doctrine ought to, to be. Uh, and the final part of the book is, is really a set of homages, uh, or in some cases, almost obituaries. But I only wrote these about people I knew personally. Uh, some of them, uh, well, uh, my parents are there, uh, some of my important teachers, colleagues, comrades, friends, uh, all people who were important to me in my career. And uh, those are very personal, and uh, you, know, you may want to skip those. Uh, uh, but these, uh, these people I knew or worked with or, or revered in some cases, as well, uh, were, were, were wonderful people. And just as no man is an island, no scholar is either. And uh, if you want to see a beautiful illustration of that in, in, in operation right now, get acquainted with George Mason University, uh, where there's a tremendous amount of uh, cooperation, uh, of joint work, of professors and teachers interacting together productively. Uh, a very different uh, situation from what you'd find in, in, in a typical university where there's a good deal of distance between the professors and the students. And it's only the fortunate few students who, who find a mentor or who are able to interact productively with their teachers. Uh, I was fortunate, I had many many people who helped me along the way. And I'm grateful. Okay, well, that's uh, more than a little bit of uh, a summary of what's in this new book. And uh, I, I suppose now we can start uh, doing some question and answer. Yes, I'll just uh, make a few. <clears throat>
But there, you, you didn't know this, but there is actually upstairs a, a, what we call the Higgs graph. And it, it has an upward sloping line that is Higgs going toward craziness. And, and Cato is slowly converging. So, so. The, um, yes, we are going to questions now. Uh, as many of you will know, if you've been here before, please wait till you're called on. We, we have a microphone, particularly for the people who are not here watching on the internet, uh, they'll want to hear your question. Uh, and you can tell us your name and affiliation uh, if you want to. You know, there's no mandatory disclosure here. But we would appreciate it. And uh, please make sure it is in the form of a question for Dr. Higgs. Uh, gentleman right here. On the, on the question of war, uh, as a libertarian myself, I've always struggled with war as opposed to all other issues one i don't see how you can you can have that you can um, attack that issue without recognizing that it's it's got to be a collective action i don't see any alternative to to that and i also don't see i wanted to ask you how do you reconcile self defense which was very clear I think at the time of the Revolutionary War, it was really clear what the hell was self-defense and what was coercion. In this world, uh, I, I can't figure out how to draw the line between coercion and self-defense often. And how do you do that? Uh, I, I think the, the most important thing is to get straight that, that war making, uh, in the usual sense, is a state activity. And we don't want to confuse that with questions about, say, people's right to self-defense. Every person has a right to self-defense. But when the state goes to war, uh, it goes to war not only on some foreigners, it goes to war at the same time on the people it purports to be defending. And that's where the trouble is. Uh, if you look at any of the big wars, uh, the, the state fights these wars by depriving people of their rights, by conscripting men into military slavery, by grasping huge amounts of people's income and wealth, by dictating the extreme details of the, uh, the economic uh, decisions they make, uh, by depriving them of normal uh, uh, freedoms. Uh, so. Uh, this is a very bizarre way to say you're defending people against the threat of foreigners by doing the very things that you supposedly are defending them against. Uh, so I, I, I think we, we need to always, to, as we think about these issues, uh, we need to distinguish between war making or defense, which is rarely defense in our world now. It's more offense of the U.S. government against selected foreigners around the world. Uh, we need to distinguish what the state is doing and its motives for doing them from our individual protection of our rights and to, to notice that if, uh, if the state is burning our village in order to save it, something is badly wrong. Gentleman in the back corner there. What's up? <clears throat> Hi, thank you, sir. Uh, Martin Moulton. I live in D.C. Actually, ran. Could you hold it closer? Uh, Martin Moulton. I live in the district. I ran as a 
Libertarian candidate in the district. What can you say are good strategies for changing the process? We can all be libertarians in our heads and be angry, and but how do we how do we change it? By the way, there are several essays on that very topic in the book. <laughs> Uh, it depends on what exactly you're seeking to change. Uh, if we're seeking to change like the whole system, uh, well, I think we need to reconsider what we're doing. Um, changing the system is, is too big a task. Uh, it's, it's too big a bite to swallow in any imaginable gulp. Uh, we can only change either elements of the big system or or try to change elements or we can as it were forget the system and try to save ourselves individually or along with our families perhaps uh, I, I don't discourage either way of attempting to bring about change and I think change can be brought about uh, in, in various ways. I, I, I think politics is a waste of time. Uh, the system is bought and sold. Uh, you're wasting your time to try to influence how the political system works. But uh, you can influence uh, how you are affected by the system as it operates. You can look for, you can look for uh, open spaces in the system, interstices that you can squeeze into to avoid uh, or evade regulations or taxes. Uh, you can look for ways to opt out. You can, for example, uh, save your children from the, the horrible fate of attending public schools by homeschooling them, or in some cases, sending them to private schools. Uh, uh, homeschooling has been one of the most successful moves to uh, get away from the grip of the state and its nefarious uh, effects on, on the minds of children. You know, this has been disastrous. Uh, the events that have brought, a, brought us to our current condition uh, in this country uh, ha have been passed on to children and beaten into them and indoctrinated into them so heavily that you know, it's hard to see how people who've, who've been exposed to that kind of indoctrination can, can ever even have a concept of freedom or liberty. So homeschooling has been an effective way of saving people's children from the state. Just as we all think you know, there ought to be separation of church and state, for identical reasons, there ought always to be separation between school and state between education and state. The mind is too important to let politicians and, and their running dogs take control of it. And uh, I, I think it's disgraceful that, that people have, uh, over time, uh, submitted, as, as most of them have. Uh, you know, we can all understand the economic pressures and other reasons that people have for sending their children to government schools. but. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a terrible development. And if we want to work toward changing the system by changing the ruling ideology, uh, to do that while kids continue to attend government schools uh, is like uh, tying a big sea anchor to our ship. 
Uh, it's very difficult to make headway when every generation is being dragged down by these uh, political correctness centers. Gentleman in the front row here. My name is Jim Rapp. Uh, so you have a couple things in monetary and all that. Um, I'd say a big enabler of the state's been our debt, you know, debt that's grown and all that. And they can't even raise interest rates 0.25% and all that. And we're, we're breathlessly waiting. Can they do this in December? Or are they going to go negative rates and all that? So do you have any comments about monetary <laughs> items? And also, is our debt, will we ever get out of this? Or is this probably intractable? Or Well, as I said before, I don't think anyone could have imagined the monetary policy we've had for the past seven years until it actually happened. And now people are having trouble imagining ever changing it, ever going back to a real monetary policy that has positive interest rates at the short end. Uh, but that's crazy. Interest rate, see, the problem that this goes back to this problems I touched on about macroeconomics. In mainstream macroeconomics, interest rates are sort of trivial variables. They, they're in there, but they don't do anything all that decisive. Okay? But in real economics, interest rates are critical variables. They are the price that connects present and future. And we live in a world where the structure of production is intertemporally related. What can be done tomorrow depends on what's done today. And what can be done the day after tomorrow depends on what's done today and tomorrow, and so forth. And to coordinate all those activities through time, the interest rate is the key price. And when you have a, a monetary policy that basically destroys that price, you know, similar to what the, the government does when it puts price controls on, as it did during World War II in a comprehensive way. When you, when you have the suppression of prices, you can't have a, a real market system. You can't have a genuine market system with intertemporal markets. But that's what we have. Now, as you say, they go in there every, every three months and they, they meet and they say, oh my God, you know, could we raise the short-term interest rate by a quarter of a point? As if, you know, the sky will fall if they do it. Well, th th this is insanity. They should never have suppressed that rate as they did in the first place, and the sooner they stop doing it, the better. Okay? But who knows? Who knows? The people who make monetary policy are not on my wavelength, and so they, they may try to do this forever. Now, as for the debt that's been run up, the short answer is no. It's never going to be repaid. It cannot be repaid. And in fact, in one way or another, this, the government will default on its obligations. Now, it can default in various ways. Uh, and uh, it can just outright default. It can just say, you know, you're out of luck. We're not going to pay what we promised. Uh, I don't think it'll do that uh, because there are alternatives that preserve the ritual dance better. Okay? It, do it doesn't want to just outright say, we screwed you. Tough luck. Okay? That's not good politics. Uh, so it'll, it'll more likely either inflate away the real obligation of debt repayments or it'll, it'll claw back 
what it gives by changes in tax laws and so forth to, to recover uh, people's uh, interest payments. Uh, it, it can do a variety of things, uh, and I'm sure all those things are, are being considered in the Treasury. <laughs> I'm not privy to inside baseball in the U.S. Treasury, but, but uh, it's got to be under consideration because we know very well that the Chinese and the Japanese who hold huge amounts, you know, each one of them about a, a trillion dollars worth of the government's debt, they're not idiots. They see what's going on. They don't want to be left out in the cold after handing so much loot over the U.S. Treasury. And so I'm confident, I'm only guessing, but I'm confident in the guess that Chinese and Japanese officials are talking to people in the U.S. Treasury, urging them to, you know, to, to take actions that will allow them to recover at least a large part of what they handed over. Uh, I think they're in trouble, as I said. This debt can't be repaid, so maybe they're just trying to cut their losses. Uh, but that makes sense, too. Uh, we'll make our way to the back, gentlemen on the aisle there, and then in the middle in the back. We'll try to get to everyone, as always. Uh, my name is Theodore Gebhard. Um, uh, you're, understandably, your historical analysis of how we got to where we are today is through the eyes of an economist. But I'm wondering whether you have, how much and whether you have considered the role of the Supreme Court um, in this process. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm thinking, for example, of the latter half of the New Deal where the court suddenly made constitutionally permissible the kind of economic policy that we have today and the infringement on property rights that we see today that was impermissible before that time. Yes, I have considered that. And in fact, in my book, Crisis in Leviathan, there are long sections in which I analyze what the courts did, the Supreme Court especially, and look at the, the major cases in which uh, they brought about not only the constitutional revolution of the late 1930s, but other changes before and afterwards. So yes, I, I think the court decisions were important. Uh, I also uh, note, however, that uh, in certain circumstances, the court is reduced to a nullity, especially in wartime. That's another reason why war is so critical. Because uh, in peacetime, the court still has enough uh, standing in, in public opinion that, that the government does not feel free to just ignore what the court says. But in wartime, the government does feel free to ignore it, and does. And so the court, not w wishing to be made a public mockery, in wartime simply either rolls over and decides every case that comes to it in the government's favor, or it declares a lot of issues to be not, uh, not proper for the court to consider at all. It calls them political questions and, and throws them back onto what the government's wanting to do with them at the time. So uh, war has been critical in, uh, in obviating the role of the Supreme Court and uh, in, in turning it into window dressing of the U.S. constitutional system. 
And you might say, well, okay, that was during wartime, particularly these big world wars, but they ended, and then we were back to where we were before. But you never go back to where you were before. Uh, in the law, as you know, once you make a decision, either, even if it's under duress, that decision is still there. It's still a precedent. It hasn't been overturned. It'll be, it'll be called forth in future briefs. Uh, and so the, the actions that the Supreme Court took or failed to take uh, during the World Wars and certainly during the late 1930s economic uh, um, troubles uh, persisted in the law. We're still living today with many of the decisions that were made at those times. And, uh, and, and today again, uh, the, uh, the courts are struggling with challenges to the government's surveillance powers, for example. The, these actions the government has taken that, you know, are, are blatant violations of the Fourth Amendment. They're, they're not even close calls. And yet, you know, to, to date, hardly any, anything that courts have done has been effective in restraining the government. And it's not even clear to me that if the, if the court, uh, even the Supreme Court, were to clearly uh, uh, strike down uh, the government's uh, surveillance powers, that the government would stop doing it. I frankly don't think it would. I think it would just go on, it would conceal it, it would change its name, it would, it would do, do what it wants. I, I think there's a, there's a level of the U.S. government that effectively runs on its own. And it's it's certainly not being taking orders from the from the courts. Gentlemen in the back, right under the people. <laughs> My name is Stephen Shore. Do you actually believe that the world would be a better place if the United States had not participated in the first and second world wars? Uh, certainly for the First World War I do, and uh, for the Second World War I think probably. Uh, we can't know. Uh, these are all things about imagining how history would have unfolded if things had been very different. Uh, World War I, though, was, was the great disaster, not in terms of magnitude of people killed or something like that, but but in the sense that World War II was simply chapter two of World War I. So if World War I had turned out differently, which it almost certainly would have without the United States entrance into the war, uh, I very easily see how the world would have been a better place and might never have had a World War II, uh, at least not in the way that the actual war took place. So yes, I do, I do believe that. I think uh, not just I, but others have made very strong arguments uh, for that perspective. Of course, it's rare for someone to argue against U.S. Partic participation in World War II, uh, but the, uh, the arguments that are mounted for it are often beside the point. People call for it, you know, the horrible things that were being done to the Jews in Europe, for example. But the United States did not go to war to save the Jews. And after it went to war, it did not try to save the Jews. And it did not save the Jews. The Jews were almost all killed. So what is the point here? The US went to war for reasons of its own. It was trying to go to war for years before Pearl Harbor was bombed. So 
there was a lot more going on there than you know being good guys about persecuted Jews. And in fact, that was, that was something that was almost an ex post apology or rationale for the U.S. engagement in the war. And it's, it's become such a, uh, an element of faith that nobody even questions anymore. There is a nice little book written by a, a political scientist, Bruce Russett at Yale, written years ago, I think in the early 70s, as I recall. And it is explicitly a challenge to the idea that it was a good idea for the U.S. to, to become involved as an active belligerent in World War II. And so I recommend Bruce's book, but I think it, it in a sense, only scratches the surface of what could be said uh, for that point of view. Other questions? Gentleman down front here has had his hand up. Thank you for your talk. My name is Kenneth Fernandez-Taylor from San Salvador, El Salvador. I'm a medical doctor in private practice. My uncle in Costa Rica, he is director of um, a libertarian institute, and we would like to start a libertarian institute in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you pitch people to become libertarians? I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like uh, you say libertarianism, and it's like lib they think it's liberalism to begin <laughs> with. And it's completely the opposite, right? Right. Well. Uh, I don't know if I'm a very good person to give advice about how to how to uh, either make libertarians out of people or 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 to start up a libertarian organization. Uh, my my focus through the years has been and and remains today basically uh, analysis of the state. It seems to me if people had a more accurate, truer understanding of what the state is and what it actually does, you wouldn't have to persuade them of anything. They would have, feel a natural revulsion against the crimes that the state carries out under color of law every day. I refer to these state actions as criminal because even when they're perfectly uh, unoffending on the surface, you know, if the, if, the, if the government wants to research diseases or if it wants to, you know, uh, maintain tennis courts or something like that, it seems, that, well, what's wrong with that? Well, uh, regardless of what the government does, there's always something wrong with it because the resources the government uses to do anything whatsoever are taken away from people by threats of force against innocent human beings. And no one, even if he calls himself a state official, has a right to rob his fellow man, or to extort his fellow man, or to bring pressure to bear on his fellow man with violence in the background. All state actions have that character. Taxes are not gifts we send to the state. We pay them because if we don't, we'll go to prison. And there's nothing magical about someone's giving himself a name and writing government on top of his building that endows people with the moral right to commit crimes. And so no matter what the government does, it's a criminal act, government as we know it. Now, of course, all societies need rules. They, they need to suppress violence. They need to suppress lawbreakers. 
real lawbreakers, people, people who commit fraud and violence, who rob and rape and steal, uh, those actions have to, have to be controlled and discouraged. But they don't have to be controlled and discouraged by people who use the very same means to do the controlling. Uh, there's something bizarre about saying the world is a, is a risky, horrible place, and in, or, and in order to deal with it, we have to have this institution called government, which itself is a criminal enterprise. You've burned the village in order to save it. That doesn't make any sense. So, so I, I think, you know, if you can open people's eyes to the nature of the state, how it operates, and particularly the details, it's so sordid. You know, there's, you know, if you could hear what politicians say in, in private, you know, if you had a Nixon tapes for every politician in the world, uh, what, a, what an education that would be. The state would never survive if we knew what these guys are actually saying behind closed doors. But, but we don't, and they're gonna try very hard to make sure that we never do, and that's part of the ritual dance I mentioned. That there's all this pretense and fraud surrounding what are essentially criminal actions. Gentleman right here, uh, and then, no, the first him and then, then you. The second row. And if you could just pass the mic back to the gentleman behind you after you're done. Okay. Um, hi, my name is Jim Clark, and uh, I'm a libertarian of uh, longstanding, more or less. Uh, but anyway, I think I'm a lot happier libertarian than you are. Um, uh, it seems to me like you took a, take a pretty dark view of uh, modern life. I don't know, I read a book by Daniel Pinker recently, uh, The Better, uh, Better Angel, Angels of Our Nature, that I think makes a very convincing case that life has gotten better and better and better and better. Um, over long term, over short term, you know, all these kids that are going to public school, uh, I don't know whether you, uh, I, I mean, he's, apparently IQs are going up five points every 20 years. Um, we all live longer than we did before. Um, you know, disease is going downhill. Uh, uh, crime is radically reduced. And I just wonder how that fits into your apocalyptic views. <laughs> Well, it, it, it fits in alongside the reasons for my darkness, as you call it. Uh, not everything has gone in the wrong direction. Uh, but as I was driving in here today in the taxi that didn't take me where I wanted to go, <laughs> a radio program was playing, and it was an author of a book talking about uh, the militarization of police in the United States, about the fact that thousands of SWAT raids take place every year in this country, almost all of them for the purpose of serving warrants, uh, that uh, very often the police uh, go to the wrong address and conduct these horrifying attacks on people. Uh, we know, of course, that they listen to everything we send electronically and put it in a database. Uh, we, we know that, that they have a variety of surveillance techniques they don't talk about uh, where they can violate uh, our supposed Fourth Amendment rights with impunity and do. And I'm not talking about just the NSA, I'm talking about local police. Uh, 
Uh, the U.S. has become a police state, and unfortunately, most Americans like it. And that's a very, very bad sign because it means that you've got a, you've got a society which is uh, under the control of uh, unrestrained, violent hoodlums in uniform, and people like it. That's not a country I want to live in. And that is the main reason why I have recently moved from this country. Because I, I live now in a place that is safe, uh, that doesn't have hoodlums roaming around, that doesn't have SWAT raids, at least in my part of it. I'm not saying it's a paradise where I live, but I am at much less risk of the police where I now live than I was when I lived in Louisiana. I lived in fear of the parish sheriff and his deputies. I don't live in fear of the drunken local cop where I live now, who never leaves his shack until his time is up to go back to the state capitol. <laughs> so yeah, people are living longer. Lots of things are better. People have an abundance of electronic toys. Uh, and every year their rights are diminished. Every year the government grows stronger. Every year they, they are disregarded with, uh, with respect to what ought to be their human rights. We have a president that makes war willy-nilly. He wants to kill somebody worldwide. He kills them. This is a mass murderer. He just kills people right and left. You say, oh, well, these are bad guys. Well, maybe one of the guys in the 20 he kills is a bad guy. But what about the other 19? Where was their due process? Uh, this, is a, this is a very mixed up country. And when you come back here from living in the third world, you're struck immediately by a lot of things. Of course, the first thing that strikes you is the, is the, the, the Nazis that look at your passport. Unlike people anywhere else in the world, you travel around, people smile, they welcome you. you know, I've just driven the length of Mexico and every soldier or policeman I talked to was happy to see me. Smiled, <laughs> didn't bother me, welcomed me. Uh, when I get back to the United States a few days ago, I'm met by a guy who looks as if he'd like to cut my throat. Uh, and he didn't, okay, that's good. But uh, if, you, if you spend much time traveling around across borders, you see that when people enter the United States, they're treated like garbage. Stand in Miami, stand in Houston. Watch how people from Latin America are treated. It's a travesty. Everybody who travels around notices this. You can go to China and get a better reception than you get in the United States. It's because people here live in fear. They live in fear of everything. Americans are afraid of their shadows. They're afraid of Islamic terrorists that don't pose a one in a million chance of hurting them. They're afraid of their children falling off the slide in the park. They're afraid if they let the children out of their sight, the children will be taken away by maniacs. Uh, they're afraid of everything. They're afraid. They're afraid. And fear-driven people cannot think straight. They can be entertained, however. So that's the kind of country we have here a massively entertained, hyper-fearful bunch of people who will sit still for a police state. Not my kind of place. Sir. Uh, speaking of corrupt government, 
I live here in Washington, D.C. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, my name is William Reed. I'm from the Black Press Foundation. But uh, we have our, our uh, government, right now on the board we have the, uh, the idea of family leave. I think it's four months that you can leave, be on leave and get paid. Minimum wage, but the ones that are most audacious is we've just built a baseball stadium. We're in the process of building a soccer stadium and we're also going to build a practice stadium for the, uh, well, a practice stadium for the Wizards basketball team and a playing facility for the, what's the, Women's. What, what's her name? Mystics. Mystics. Yeah. What say you? Well, I say the people of Washington D.C. are being ripped off by crony capitalists. But this happens all over the, the United States. Uh, these sport these sports stadiums uh, are always basically the same in terms of how they're finagled. They're brought about by insiders in the business community and and the owners of these teams and the local politicians. I used to live in Seattle, and when they uh, when they were going to uh, to build the, uh, the the new football stadium there, so many people were opposed to the county subsidizing uh, that facility that that the politicians felt obliged to 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 put it up for a referendum vote, and they did, and the people in the referendum voted overwhelmingly against it. And a week later, they went ahead to build the build the field, disregarding the vote. <laughs> so you know that's democracy in action. Gentleman right here. Oh, it went back. Yeah. <laughs> so you've talked a bit about how you've tried to separate yourself from the state and its ability to kind of impede on your liberty. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has those kind of resources or the knowledge that even their liberty is being impeded on. How, what kind of winnable battles do you see that somebody that is, I guess, politically conscious to it, like people in this room, could uh, help their fellow man? Well, you know, helping your fellow man's easy. You just find a fellow man that needs help and help him. <laughs> Politics is something altogether different, you see. Uh, if you have to have a government program to help your fellow man, you've already lost the boat. You, you, you've lost track of what you're trying to do. We can all help our fellow man. It's not hard, you know? People who need help are all around us. Help them, you know? Don't, don't, don't uh, you know, put something on the ballot. Uh, so, you know, but I, I don't want to be uh, dismissive of, of your point there. Uh, what, what can people do? Uh, I think they can do a variety of things, you know, but they can't do it on a global scale. They have to, to, pick, to pick an issue, pick a, a question, and uh, try, to, try to marshal either some way to resist it or to publicize what's wrong with it. Uh, they, ha they have to, to somehow recruit enough people who will make enough noise that politicians will be backed against the wall. They can be backed against walls. You know, you can embarrass them. And I think actually embarrassing them is, is a prime 
general strategy for going after these people. Uh, they, they, they do a lot of things that you can find out about, even if you can't get into the inner sanctums and re record their Nixon tapes. Uh, you can still find out things that are very incriminating. And so if you can do that, you can put pressure on them. I mean, they're blackmailing you. Maybe you can blackmail them back uh, is, is, is one way to, to think about it. Uh, that's not a way I think, well, I don't recommend that personally. I, I rec recommend taking evasive action. I recommend affirmative ways, not defensive ways, not ways to fight the state, but ways to build a parallel existence for yourself and others. Okay? Find ways to opt out. Find ways to avoid the, the aspects of state action that are most harmful to you. Uh, and, and, and there are all kinds of ways to do that. Uh, for, for young people, people your age, uh, I, I'm recommending to everybody that they, they seriously think about acquiring skills that give them mobility. So that if they, if they need to or if they just want to, they can leave this country and still make a living somewhere else in the world. With the technology we have now, there are many ways to do that. And I think it's an excellent insurance policy. If I were a young person, I would be working very hard to do that right now myself. Uh, there are people who make a living from very remote places. They work, they work on the internet in one way or another. Uh, they work at long range. And uh, modern communications allows us to do a great many things without having physical proximity uh, to the people we do business with or the people we work for. So uh, I think young, young people need to prepare themselves. Uh, I may be completely off base, you see. My friend here who's, uh, who's seeing the bright side of things may be the one who's, who's seeing the real United States, you know, this wonderful, thriving, ever better uh, land of liberty and progress. Uh, I just wonder if there's, if there's a, a time when you would have ever lived in the United States. Uh, well, that's a different question and involves a lot of contingencies. Uh, see, because one of the things that happens, even in a system like the current one in the United States, is that a certain amount of entrepreneurship continues to take place. And because of that, many things get better. Right? I was reading just this morning about a magnificent uh, way that some medical technologists had devised to get chemotherapy drugs into brain tumors through the blood barrier in the brain that has normally prevented the direct introduction of drugs in, in brain tumors. And it was so fascinating. I think oh, these guys are geniuses, the way they figured out how to do this. And, uh, and that, but that kind of thing's going on all over the, the place, right? There are many geniuses out there. They're working on things. They're making things better. But they're doing this in spite of the government. Okay? Uh, even a government as powerful as that in the United States can't crush everybody and doesn't want to crush everybody. That would not be in the interest of the predator to, to, to kill the host. So there's always ebb and flow. There's always coming and going. There are always people that put, put up enough uh, screaming and kicking that they can make the state back off at least enough that they can uh, do their work, uh, but 
But that doesn't mean that we're not moving into very dark places at the same time with regard to the police state. So uh, we're coming to an end here now. I, I think I, I, I'm required to say a word on behalf of the Cato Institute here. I see a couple of my colleagues back there, younger colleagues indeed, who spend much of their day reading, writing, they go places and advocate for policies. Both of them work in the uh, criminal justice area. And I wouldn't want to leave it with the view that uh, their work is not useful or hasn't had real effects or has real potential. I mean, you might believe that, but I don't. And I don't think anyone here at Cato believes that. Uh, there is something we can all see that we've done at some point. It hasn't, we haven't reached a libertarian utopia at, at this point, and we're not likely to. But we do believe that uh, what we do every day makes things a little better and at least presents possibilities for the American public. So on, on behalf of my colleagues and my own work here, and, and your own work too, I mean, your work is freely available. We can read Crisis and Leviathan. People can read it and say, gosh, you know, we're, we're headed down the wrong path, or we don't want another war. And we have to believe, I think, as intellectuals that that makes a difference or can make a difference. And I think uh, on another day, perhaps you would agree with me. Wanna... I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, we're going to have a fr the proverbial free lunch that's supposed to not exist. <laughs> <laughs>